podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. the caregivers. We all are, for at the heart of being human is the capacity to care, to reach out to others and explore the relationships we build. Valeria interviews Edward Smink, the author of The Soul of Caregiving. The book is about us and how we as caregivers serve even sacrifice for those in need. Dr. Edward invites you to explore with him how we have the opportunities to partake in a kind of pilgrimage along the path of our experiences as caregivers. Who will be your guide on this journey? Unlike other pilgrims who have a guide assigned to them, you will soon discover it is your own soul guiding you. Professionally skilled as we may be to meet the needs of others, a fundamental core component of our busy lives as caregivers is the necessity to stop and rest. It is not a waste of time, but rather a luxury of time to ponder, reflect, and grow from our experiences. Not an easy endeavor in the midst of a whirlwind of activity. We as caregivers experience vulnerability, helplessness, fears, and pain over the traumatic events we experience because we care. We care about those whom we are called to serve. There is so much wisdom in Edward's works. He calls the tension between activity and reflection the dance of caregiving, a dance between the caregiver's needs and those of the one in need, and says there is within each of us a space that seeks wholeness and transformation an area of woundedness which often shows its face in the midst of our caregiving. In a unique and profound way, those who serve are transformed in the healing relationship that is created with those in need. We are wounded healers. Edward also explores compassion fatigue and its two sisters, secondary traumatic stress and burnout. He says that we experience compassion fatigue because we care. Edward has over 40 years experience in healthcare as nurse, crisis and pastoral counselor, executive leader, facilitator of mission, ethics, value, and leadership formation. His career has the foundation of his many years in different leadership positions where his skills of active listening, the promotion of ethical and professional guidelines, crisis intervention, facilitation of personal and professional goals, growth strategies, and sensitivity for and the promotion of cultural and spiritual diversity. 
Edward likes to claim that along with his academic credentials, he has learned most from his experience with colleagues who care for others and from those who needed his services. He has coached individuals, leadership teams, directors, healthcare professionals, and executive leaders. He is a successful author and an accomplished speaker. Here is the interview with Edward Smink. In your own words, who is Dr. Edward Smink? Well, he's a person that enjoys being a caregiver. He's been a caregiver most of his uh, life. Uh, he started at 18 and uh, in multi different aspects. And it's just an aspect of who I am. And I really enjoy reaching out to others and learning their stories. And I also learn uh, from them. And I have become a better person because of these interactions. That sounds really good. Thank you. I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, The Soul of Caregiving, A Caregiver's Guide to Healing and Transformation. So my first warm-up question is, what is life to you, Dr. Edward? Oh, life is, um, is a miracle. Life is full of um, different encounters with yourself, with others, and with creation and with your higher power or God. I really enjoy being out in the, out, in the outdoors, growing tomato plants and being able to appreciate the garden with the flowers and, and the different vegetables. It's very life-giving to me. And, you know, life is, um, is something that's given. And I have come to really appreciate my own life and who I am as a person and who I am as a person is, is what I give back to, to others and to the community. Wow. What a wonderful answer. What do you think is the opposite of life? Oh, the opposite of life, I would call the couch potato. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I would call a person stuck in their own woundedness and, and not finding the way out of it and, and, and moving into anxiety or depression that they there's something stuck and it's not like their life isn't life-giving and they're not experiencing life as life-giving so i guess that would be my definition i could think of all the different addictions that our culture experiences and even myself what we go through and and there's always that choice to choose life or to stay um in in a place of of I I would use the term inhumanity. I don't know. It, you know, growing up, there was always this this figure of having an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. You know, it's always like we have this opportunity to choose. So when we don't choose, we get stuck in our own woundedness or dysfunction. Uh, it's not life giving. In fact, it's 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 almost like a hell. Yeah, it resonates a lot with me, what you just said. You said something interesting about not choosing when we don't choose, and that's when we feel stuck. I'm wondering if some of us don't even see the choices and the possibilities. And that by itself, it feels that we are in that stuck state of mind. Well, if I understand your question correctly, what I anticipate is sometimes we're not even aware that we're stuck. 
And so it often, I mean, in, in addiction therapy, they use the term an intervention. Sometimes a good friend or a relative, a spouse can say to the other person, you know, when you act this way, this is how I feel. And is, do you really want, do you really want to hurt me or hurt others? Is that what you really want to do? And they, oh, wait, I, I wasn't aware of that. Well, what do you think is, is causing that behavior? And sometimes they're open and sometimes they're very resistant. Um, but that's the conversation I think you need to have. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it resonates too. So it's not being even aware that we are stuck. That might be the, the first stage. It's a lack of self-awareness, right? Well, in, you know, when I go into compassion fatigue, most caregivers find it difficult to acknowledge what's going on within themselves because of the cultural taboos about being able to speak openly and being able to share with another to trust and, and always afraid that another shoe is going to drop. So they bury their feelings. And oftentimes it's only when their body reacts that they go, oh, I, I need to do something. So yes, it is true that some of us understand there's something going on, but we're afraid to acknowledge it. Others have no awareness that something's going on. And that's where friends and family and, and uh, caregivers in general can help each other. Right. Wow. Yeah, I have lots of questions for you here later about your work. We'll explore that more. Um, so my next warm-up question is about freedom. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Well, I just had that sense um, the other day. It means that there's something within me, and I, I call that, you know, being in touch with my, my soul, my soul meaning that interior part of who I am, um, that spark of life within me. And when I'm in touch with that, it, it, it opens up a whole panorama of possibilities and choices and gives me the opportunity. And that's where freedom is. It gives me the opportunity to choose. So I'm, I'm free to make decisions. Um, and when I make those decisions, um, something wonderful happens to me. I can't remember the name of the, of the uh, Jewish doctor and philosopher that was in the um, concentration camps, but he wrote a book and he, he, he said, those that chose to, to hang on to life and not, be, not to give up or not to submit to the tyranny that they were facing survived longer. And so that, that's a real important uh, insight that even in the midst of, of everything being taken away, I can still, I can still, I still have the power within me to make a choice. I'm really free. Yes, a thousand times to them. What do you think is the world's greatest healing need at this time? Well, we can start on many levels, like you can drop a uh, a, a stone in water and it has many ripples <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or there's, a, there's a fountain and it springs up and there's many ripples. And so you can start with 
humankind, you know, what's what's the the wound that they're experiencing that causes them to, you know, pollute the earth, to be violent, a culture of violence, to start unnecessary wars, um, even in the cultural divide of our of our country today. You know, can we speak openly without, you know, causing a, a major riot with another person? I'm thinking of those caregivers who stood in the midst of protesters last week. Um, the caregivers with masks on just stood silently in front of those waving flags and saying, you know, too, there are too many restrictions, you know, regarding the pan- uh, the, um, the virus pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, there was that silent, there was that silent, you know, witness there. So it's something extremely interesting in how we can stand up to the violence or the bulliness of our culture, you know, the, the indiscriminate polluting of our culture. So where does it begin? <laughs> you know, if, I, if, I, if I'm having asthma because of a of a factory next to in my neighborhood that's polluting all these toxins into the air you know who's responsible you see so i like the image of of the fountain and you know starting with the person if i think there's a buddhist saying you know if 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 i'm in touch with um what ha- what's happening in me it's like a butterfly whose wings spread out th- across the and make waves across the universe. Yeah. What is love to you? Oh wow. I understand in our in our language we only have one word whereas in many other languages um they, there there's more than one word. It could be self-love, which means the deep wholeness and appreciation of who I am. Can I Am I, do I really believe I'm good enough to love myself? That's a cultural wound today. We could talk about love between uh, spouses or friends. We could talk about love of country or love of cooking or love of of gardening. I mean, you see how expansive it is? Uh, (laughs) True. uh, How I love your answers. (laughs) That would be another one. (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, love of you know, love of country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, and and it's I only use that word once. And, you know, I know in, in Latin and Greek, there's many different, you know, there's agape love and and um, other types of love. And I, I don't have all the definitions before me, but it's just, it's just interesting that we only have one word. And I've talked about it in about 10 or 10 different ways. Oh, and part of that, part, excuse me, and part of that is allowing myself to be loved, you know, that I allow myself to be open. It's a very feminine principle in, in all human, in all humankind that, that will I receive the love of another or do I push it away? Right. I love your wisdom. That's what I meant to say earlier. I really love your wisdom. So far, so wonderful. <laughs> uh, I have two more warm-up questions. The next one is about God. What, where, and who is God to you? Well, I was raised Catholic. I had to 
understand what, and I'll use the word, um, what is the Christ event for me? And it's not dogma. It has to do with the reality of a God who became flesh and then went back to God who transformed humankind. I believe that any wound that I have, any dysfunction that I have, any sinfulness that I have has been has been redeemed is the, the word I want to use. And I feel a deep communion with the fact that this Christ event is happening in me. It's not that I go and, and talk about um, God talk. Teilhard de Chardin, who was a French um, scientist, came to the awareness that all matter, all creation, no matter what, no matter what your particular spiritual tradition is, is imbued with this sense of this cosmic sense of God. That it's, and even Einstein, um, when he was um, in his later years, believed that there was a spirit in matter, that there was something innate that, that radiated uh, the energy that, that's in matter. So from my own focus, and it's really my mission now when I want to reach out to caregivers is let them know that they could discover deep within themselves that eternal principle, that sacred principle, no matter what they call it, I call it the Christ event. They may call it at one with the universe. They may call it um, from a Buddhist perspective, um, uh, perspective or from a transformative perspective or a psychological perspective. Whatever they call it, it's sacred. And that's what heals. Right. Do you see a difference between spirituality and religion? Oh, very much so. Spirituality animates religion and religion without spirituality is dead so religion may be a practice of spirituality but spirituality is is much much deeper um there's a um depth psychologist james hillman says when you experience um anguish or, or when you experience uh hurt um, that opens up the, the, the soul to experience the sacred. Infl inflictions bring about, uh, bring about gods, bring about, bring about the sacred. And so, and he was an atheist. He came to believe that when you are experiencing these particular um, afflictions, he says afflictions bring the gods. That's very, that's very powerful. And Marion Woodman, also a deaf psychologist, she says, when we're most vulnerable, there is a surrender, and it takes us to a place where God enters. God comes through the wound. And so spirituality is the recognition of those interior movements within ourselves that lead us to um, transformation and, and, and healing. And it's much, it's much deeper than the practice of religion. Right. 
My last warm-up question. What do you think is the purpose of life? Well, I can remember the catechism of years ago. <laughs> and I can't remember it exactly, but it basically it's saying that to, to be happy and to be at one with myself. And if I'm at one with who I am, then I'm in one with creation, other people, and the, the, the holy other, whatever we call that. And when we're in touch with our soul, we are, we're happy. It makes us experience, uh, you know, life in a, in a in a different way. I will use the word holistic. It it doesn't mean we're not suffering or we're we're not not having difficulties. It just means that our whole approach is different, and we have a sense of, um, you know, we have a sense of fulfillment. I was I was coaching a client yesterday, and this person made a tremendous leap in faith and an experience within her, a real transformation. And I was extremely happy. So it's also relational. See, it's not only with, with, with myself, but it's in relationship with, with others, with the holy other, with creation, with picking a tomato on my tomato plant. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it always goes back to that. Yeah, it's very simple, isn't it, in a way? <laughs> um, so let's talk about your work and your book. What was the inspiration and intention of writing your book, The Soul of Caregiving? Well, I write in the introduction, why would I write a book? And it just became clear to me. And, and I'll, just, I'll just read the first paragraph, if I may. It says, reflection on a life of nearly 50 years as a caregiver in multiple healthcare and leadership roles gives me pause to seek to find a voice and to be heard. There are many reasons why one would want to write a book. And as a caregiver, something within me aches to share the insights and wisdom that I hold as a sacred treasure. I want to reach out to all who carelessly, selflessly work for others. I want to say that the scars or interior wounds that you experience as caregivers are invitations to rediscover your soul. You are not alone. You're not going mad when your soul aches because you have cared. I want to reach out to others who are experiencing compassion fatigue. I went through that 20 years ago. I know what it is, you know, to not seek help. I know what it is to over, you know, commit myself. I know what it is not to be able to do adequate self-care. And so all those, all those promptings have led me to say, you know, at this time of my life, and the reason why I wrote the book is for others, it's for caregivers. I have a few questions, general questions, before I ask you more um, specific questions about your book. Uh, the first one is about the word caregiver. What is your own definition for this word? Well, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I say in the book, who are the caregivers? And I say we all are. For at the heart of being human is the capacity to care, to reach out to others and to form and build relationships. It's, that, it's at the heart of being human that we are caregivers. And then I, I expand the definition because 
most think when you say caregiver, they think, oh, that's just someone that works in a hospital or uh, in healthcare. And I go, no, my definition is broad in scope and it covers a diversity of occupations and professions. Our cast of characters include caregivers in the healing arts, healthcare professionals, physicians, nurses, therapists, healthcare and ancillary workers. How about certified chaplains, certified coaches, spiritual leaders, pastors, wellness coaches, as well as first responders, including firefighters, safety officers, and emergency medical service personnel. How about the active and retired military? They care. What about educators who care for their students and parents who care for each other and for their children and for those who, who are caring for chronically ill children and adult children who care for one or two parents? We are all caregivers. So I expand the definition. And I also uh, differentiate caregivers from care takers. Right. That was my next question. <laughs> yes. So talk to me about that, Dr. Edward, the difference between, I never thought about it, caretaker and caregiver. So as soon as you say caregiver, there's something alive about it. You know, caregiving, you know, there's something soulful just in saying it. And when you say caretaker, something different happens. It's just a job. And oftentimes people experience burnout or compassion fatigue. They lose, it's not that they lose their soul. And I've heard during this pandemic, a lot of caregivers saying, I feel I've lost my soul. It's not that they lost their soul. It's just that there's been so much trauma that has been, you know, experienced that they're not able to get back to it. And so they, they feel that everything they do is just a task. And, and they lose that sense of the, the original joy they have in being a caregiver. So caretaker is very task-oriented and without soul. Caregiver is with soul. Right. And you mentioned earlier, that's one of my questions about the definition of soul. What is soul to you? Because I have more questions for you on that. Well, if you ask the average person what is soul, you know, they, they may think of, of something like ghost, mm. you know, so on Hallow Halloween, we all make fun, you know, we all make fun of the dead. And, you know, then you have the, we don't have the day of the dead like they do in, in Latin America countries that honors dying as a normal experience. In our culture, we sort of push it away and, oh, and Halloween, we'll make, we'll make fun of it. So we can talk about soul music. We can talk about soul food, we can talk about soul mate, or we can talk about soul just in general. And my definition is that it is the uh, animating uh, life force within a person. And so when you're in touch with that animating force, you really discover yourself. You really discover who you are in relationship to others to creation and to the holy other. And so I like to I like to experience soul uh, in that sense that it's a a it's a spiritual part of who we are. You, you can't nail it to a tree. You know <laughs> true. 
You know, it's not like throwing spaghetti on a wall. It it it's something that's that sticks to us. And I like using the analogy of looking at your hand. You know, when you look at your hand right in front of you, you go, "Wow, it's it's full of life." You know, uh, and I know, I know that it, it there's matter, but there's also the spirit of life going through me. And I use that as an, a metaphor to say the same is true with soul. It's 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 within every being in every part of our body, and and that's that what I what I like to call the 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 uh, animating force. And so the reason I chose the title "The Soul of Caregiving" is that can a caregiver get in touch with that animating principle? those interior values that that um, dictate who they are as a person. And when you're in touch with soul, you're able to make appropriate choices. Wow. Um, how do we do them? How we practice, how we get in touch on a daily basis with the soul. It's interesting, I just um, uh, noted that you don't say often, you don't say the soul. Well, I realize I use it in the title, but when you say the soul, it sort of becomes out there, the soul, it's out there. But when you say soul, it goes, whoa, that's, that's something about interior. You had just mentioned something earlier about soul that I was going, oh, you were, you were mentioning what are the practical ways. When, it, first of all, all caregivers experience what's called compassion fatigue. That was, um, you know, discovered by uh, um, a, a Charles um, Figley. And um, he said, because we are in such contact with the suffering of others, we experience what's called compassion fatigue. Now, the word compassion comes from two Latin words. The first is cum, which means together, to be with. And the second means passio, which means to suffer. So when you ha a person who has compassion is one who understands the suffering of the other and is able to respond to it. So he says, because caregivers care, you know, most caregivers are not caretakers. You know, occasionally you'll meet one, but most caregivers are very loving, compassionate people. And so they enter into this place of fatigue. It, it's difficult, and you, you hear that today, you know, with the first responders, the nurses, the fire department, the police department, you know, officers, they're, they're saying, you know, they never realized the extent of the caring that was, that was um, you know, asked of them. And so they're exhausted. Well, here we go. Well, how do we deal with acknowledging? And this is very countercultural because our, our culture says you don't talk about what's going on, you don't feel what's going on, and you don't trust what's going on. 
And because of that, these cultural taboos, uh, caregivers are frightened to share what's going on. They may, they may feel that they're going to be fired, or even more importantly, they may feel they're going to be shamed or ridiculed because they're not, they're not, um, they're not uh, responding. Um, they're not meeting the cultural uh, taboo, that uh, cultural norm that says you have to be strong. You have to be like Superman or Superwoman. You can't be vulnerable. And if you are, that means, oh, you, you must be mentally ill. Well, compassion fatigue is not mental illness. It's, it's, it's exhaustion. And so I was talking to a, a, uh, a physician who works in a, a neonatal intensive care unit. Well, that's very, very um, stressful. And I said, you know, you're dealing with life and death all the time. And I said, you know, can you talk with one of your physician peers, you know, if you're experiencing something? He said, oh, no, because if I did, they would think I was a bad doctor. I also talked with a, a um, emergency medical um, individual who experienced a plane crash, single engine plane crash, and got there too late and actually witnessed the plane blowing up and, and the pilot being killed. And the sense of, you know, we're called to do something, but we can't do anything. Anyway, she joined a debriefing um, group that her company sponsored and she went to it and some of her teammates said, oh, you're joining the Crybabies Club. So that's the cultural norm. So right up front, you know, the, the most important thing is to acknowledge something's going on. And Eric Gentry talks about that. And he says, then you, you, start, you start building what's called compassion resilience. So re resilience is I can still have the emotional, psychological well-being in, 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 in caring for another, but I'm able to balance that with certain, I'll use the term, boundaries and in self-care. So he says the first step is that you acknowledge something's going on. So that takes a lot of courage. And I admire the present caregivers today who are going out in the streets and protesting. Without knowing it, they're, they're, they're engaging in their own healing because they're speaking, see? So the first thing is to acknowledge, hey, there's an issue. The second thing is to share it with someone so you're heard. They don't want advice, they just wanna be heard. And so there's where the hospitals and, and all the different uh, organizations of, of first responders, police, et cetera, you know, have to allow um, these voices to be heard. And, and then once you're heard, and, and, and once you seek help, a coach or a psychologist, you're able to start a process of developing resilience and, and choosing um, uh, avenues and paths of self-care. 
when you're involved in self-care, which is so uh, antagonistic, I don't know if I'm saying that right, um, to our culture, you know, oh, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take care of myself when I'm a caregiver. Oh, you know, can I do that? Caregivers are notorious and not taking care of themselves. But the same skills they have, they can use when they, when they reach out to another, they can use those same skills to take care of themselves. That's, that's how you do it step by step. You know, it might be simple, uh, a parent, um, realizing that they need help with, with, with their disabled child or a, a, an adult realizing they need care with taking care of one of their parents. I had this example from one of the client, one of my clients who said, I'm just exhausted. I'm taking care of my father who has Alzheimer's and I need help. And I said, well, is there anyone, you know, in your family or, or around or, or an organization we could look at that um, that could help you and, and she said well my husband's here and he 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 said he would like to help and I said well why don't you ask him it was right in front of her <laughs> and, and she had to acknowledge that she wasn't superwoman I like the way uh, you used the word self-love earlier and then now self-care I'm wondering where does it start if self-love comes before self-care? Well, um, I don't really know. All I, I can say is that um, we learn self-love because we have experienced being loved. And sometimes many caregivers haven't had that experience, which is some of the reasons why they're caregivers. <laughs> they're and yet, and when they when they are most uh, attuned to being a caregiver, which happens all the time with me, we discover that we, there's something very good about ourselves. So, okay, so that's self love. Self care is because I love myself. So, if I'm not taking care of myself, how can I take care of others? Right. Right. So true. In your book, you say reflection can be dangerous as it is healing for the caregiver. Dangerous because reflection reveals vulnerability and bottle up emotions which may surprise the caregiver. So talk to me about this, what you call tension between activity and reflection. Well, I call that the dance of caregiving. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it, it's a real dance because, for example, today, you know, when we're asked to shelter at home, you know, the sense is we're isolating ourselves. When you have that sense of isolation, you know, it can cause a lot of issues. So the very issues can lead you to reflection can lead you to a sense of solitude where you have this sense of being with yourself, you know, and, and, and with others. And so, you know, there's this, there's this, there's this dance that goes on. And if I'm not used to 
formally reflect. I think I think we all do it naturally. You know, a wife cooks this wonderful meal and everyone enjoys it, and they go, "Oh, costa um, mangiare uh, eccellente," and every everyone has that sense of you know of well-being. Well, that's reflecting. You know, or I I go outside and you know there's this big snowstorm and it's quiet and I go wow you know this I I reflect on it or I'm holding my newborn baby or grandchild and we reflect on it. So it's not something that only monks and and priests and brothers and 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 um, mystics do. It's something that is part of humankind. But when we do that, we when we allow ourselves to be quiet, it may bring up a wound that we're not, we don't want to look at. And that's, that, that's what scares people, you know, oh, well, it only reveals something that's been itching within me, but gee, and, you know, can I look at it? And I use the metaphor that most of us are in our own prisons. And oftentimes we just paint the bars of the prison gold. Oh, it's wonderful here because the myth is, it. the real myth is that the pain I'm feeling in the prison is less than the pain in getting out of the prison. But the opposite is true, you know, because in the prison, we're holding the key in our hand and we can open the gate open the door and the fear, the the pain of getting out is less than the pain in staying in the prison but we think the opposite so that's one of the fears and you know that's where guides come in and coaches come in and counselors come in and spiritual directors come in you know they they help us frame and they they sort of hold hold the the trauma um, and, and it's like, you know, when a child runs, uh, is hurting and runs to the parent, what does the parent do? He parent reaches out and grabs that, that child and says, you're going to be okay. Well, that's what a coach or a, a counselor or a spiritual director, you know, when they listen and they're able to work with that client and they're able to hold that trauma and say, it's going to be okay. It's not the end of the world. You're going to get through this. And, and that's what helps the person and acknowledge and reach out to someone to talk to. Right. Do you connect perfectionism to compassion fatigue? I don't know, but it's a good question. And I, I could, uh, yes. So what is, what is uh, perfection? Perfection is the is the attempt that we have to keep working and working and working and working, and there's you know until we get it right. Well, there's a good part of that. If I'm a scientist, you know, or I'm an architect, or whatever I'm doing, you know, if I'm a chef, I I want to keep working at it. Well, that that's okay, but when it gets out of proportion. Um, you know, there is a book out called Addicted to Perfection. And I believe that it's a part of our 
woundedness that we're saying if we only get it right, we'll be loved. And it doesn't work. So compassion fatigue, I think it's a little different now that we're, we're teasing it. Uh, I could be a perfectionist, you know, like if I'm having surgery, I want to make sure that doctor, that surgeon is perfect in what he's doing. Okay, so that that's okay. But um, if that gets in the way of personhood, then something's different that's that's going on. And compassion fatigue is because you're caring for another and you're bombarded with so much so much um, trauma, I'll use the word trauma, that you don't have time to, to reflect. You don't have time to sift it through and, and you get exhausted. Right. And I went, I went through that 20 years ago. Wow. Um, do you see a difference between empathy and compassion? Yes. No, there is, there is a, a difference. Um, I could be, I could have empathy for a person, but does that lead to action? Compassion means I'm actually involved with that person. In light of the definition of I'm, I'm suffering with that person. That's my sense at the moment. I, um, what is your sense? Yeah, that's um, a question that I have been asking for a long time. I just stopped recently, maybe because I found the one that satisfied me. Uh, somebody said that empathy is the ability to feel. So we are feeling the emotions and we could become impaired to the point of not being able to help anyone because we are suffering in the, in the first place. But compassion is different. We are... We acknowledge the pain deeply in the other or in the world, but we are still able to act. So it's not really emotional. There's no emotions involved, but it's a deep uh, understanding in a way. Well, I like the sense, yes, that frees us to act. Right, right, right. So that's kind of interesting. I'm not so sure because words are very tricky <laughs> in many ways. Especially with different languages and cultures. Right. It's true. True. We're almost at the end of the interview, and I have one more question for you. Talk to me about love is a wounded healer. I really like that, that chapter because um, it has to do with being a, perf a perfectionist. And in light of what we just talked earlier, when we really love ourselves, we acknowledge that we're not perfect. I remember giving a, a, a class to a, group, a new group of employees at one of the hospitals I worked at, and we had a value of excellence. And I said, is there anyone here who's perfect? <laughs> and no one raised their hand. Uh, okay. And, and we, all, we all laughed. And then I said, okay, um, and don't we really hate people who think they are? And they all laughed. The point is from, from the earliest of times, um, humankind realized that we're not perfect, which means that we, we share a certain woundedness. And, and, and in that woundedness, um, when we're able to understand that within ourselves, 
we're, we're better healers. So if I understand, um, and, 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 you know, um, Aristotle, um, came out and, and, and said, you know, that you had to, um, understand the experiences of the sick before you could be a good physician. And, and then Carl Jung would, would say, physician, heal thyself. And so who, what is a wounded healer? A wounded healer is a person, well, I'll use the word, is a caregiver who recognizes that he or she has their own limitations. Uh, oftentimes you hear, oh, the doctor or that nurse is acting like they're God. You know, and you go, wait a minute. Um, and I've said this to some doctors and nurses. I said, no, we're involved in a sacred work, but we're not gods. <laughs> because there's something in us that is always in need of um, fulfillment. We're always growing. We're always changing. You know, um, Michelle Obama's book, you know, Becoming is about, you know, life. We're all becoming and, and uh, you know, I really like that, that sense. And so love means that I can, if I'm conscious of my own woundedness, I can understand your woundedness. And if you, if you experience that I understand your woundedness, then the healer function in you starts working. You trust me. You sense that that um, that things are going to get better because of the relationship I have with you. So, wound um, reaches out to wound, and and that that opens up the whole uh, perspective of of uh, healing, which is which is really the response to love. I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, very much. Wonderfully. Yes. Yeah. I was just going to say, wounded he, uh, the wounded healer is an arch, an ancient archetype. And, and an archetype is like a collective experience. It's like, you know, a nurse or a doctor or a mother or father. They're, they're all bigger than the person who is a, a, a nurse, a doctor, or a mother or father. There's a collective consciousness about it. Would you like to add anything or read another passage in your book before I ask you my final questions? No, I think I'm okay. I'll, I'll, um, I'll listen to your questions. <laughs> um, so I have a few of them here. The first one is, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? The hardest lesson was um, that I wasn't Superman, that um, I needed help. I was raised in an alcoholic family and, um, you know, you build walls around yourself to protect yourself. And I had to learn to break those down. And I think that's why the compassion fatigue I experienced and even burnout was a way of my body, my psyche, uh, my God saying, stop and take care of yourself. Right. Wow. What is another word for healing? I would use the word um, an experience of wholeness, an experience of being together. And, and healing is different than curing. 
um, healing. Uh, I could be a, a cancer patient and my my diagnosis is extremely poor, but I feel there's a healing going on within me, whether or not I live or die. It's something something much deeper than than curing. Right. That's uh, interesting because healing, in a way, makes me think about that we are constantly being traumatized by life on a daily basis, in a way. And that's why we need healing as a process and almost, it never ends. That's true. Yes. And to be able to recognize that what's happening is it can cause us harm. So even that, even that awareness that, then that makes us make a decision. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I would just simply um, try to have everything in order so my partner and friends would know what to do. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy with the way my life is. That's a great answer. I love hearing that from my guests. Do you believe in life after death? I do. What kind of life, Dr. Edward? Well, it has to be involved. If God is love, it has to be involved with the experience of being loved and loving. You know, I that's all I know. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, it's not that I lose my identity. It's that my identity is even more recognized and fulfilled. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Well, I'm I'm getting older. Uh, uh, I'm feeling um, blessed uh, by my work in in what I'm doing, and um, I really feel confident in myself, which has taken a long time. It's an inner authority that I really I really like, and I, you know, I just feel. Um, more and more blessed because of it. It has been a meaningful conversation, peaceful. I love your wisdom. It was fun too. <laughs> really fun in the, in the spiritual sense, I call it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And just in closing, my book is, is, is an invitation to be engaged. It's not a how-to-do book. It will, it, it will engage you into dealing with your own wisdom, and that's what heals. Thank you so much, Valeria. Thank you. My last, last question. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Uh, the best way is to go to my website, and you can, you can list that in, you know, in, in this uh, conversation. Is, uh, it's, it's, you know, H-T-T-T-P-S colons, you know, slash, slash, forward slash, slash, a soulofcaregiving.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Dr. Edward, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Edward Smink, please visit his website, soulofcaregiving.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, 
Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.